Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 85, To Pay or Not to Pay, recorded March 3rd, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. And before we get too far in, yesterday marked a solemn occasion across the world, the, um, the birthday of a man who is now gone. Uh, but who is um, near and dear to the hearts of all of us here at Element OP. And so uh, for the next minute and a half or so, we're going to have a tribute to the great Theodore Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. Right, rather than read from first and second Samuel, I read from Sam I am. According to the Latter-day Saint Seuss. You do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Sam, I am. I could not, would not on a boat. I will not, will not with a goat. I will not eat them in the rain. I will not eat them on a train. Not in the dog, not on a tree, not in a car, you let me be. I do not like them in a box. I do not like them with a fox. I will not eat them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I will not eat them, Sam. I am. That was the great Jesse Jackson reading Dr. Seuss. And with us tonight for this ridiculousness, as always, it's a close call, but he's here, Mr. Command Line Godfather, Chris Neves. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. I'm glad I could make it tonight. So are we, Chris. He's, uh, glad you he's, could be uh, here. Well, I'll let him tell you a little bit, but the, uh, the uh, counterpoint, the balance, the, the other end of the teeter-totter from the Command Line Godfather is our very own gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hiya, Seth. Hey, Mark, and welcome you're, you're in a to morning zoo kind of mode today, aren't you? I, I am, and I, I maybe this is what getting enough. We'll sleep be sta- stacking, uh, like. spinning some tracks of wax. Uh, I totally, I don't remember. Hey, what's the weather like? <laughs> Sorry. And my name is Mark, by the way. <laughs> and so we're all here for this week's episode <clears throat> of the Everyday Linux, where we're going to um, uh, cover a bunch of stuff. And then in the last five minutes, read an article because that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> and or not do anything. Ostensibly, the, the, the topic of the show is about whether or not we should pay for open source. We all know you don't have to. That's one of the great tenets of open source. It is free as in speech and free as in beer. One of the dumbest analogies ever, but we stick with it because there's never been anything put forth that's better. Um, mm-hmm. 
Uh, something like that. Because uh, geeks oh. like beer. Uh, but before guess, we go uh, on, um, I want to say uh, thanks. Uh, last week, we pseudo-commanded you uh, to send in some, uh, send me an email um, telling me your name, your location geographically in the world, and your age and what you do for a living. And uh, so far, a number of you have obeyed said command, and I appreciate that, and I hope that you will continue to do so. It's important uh, to gather demographic data. So far, it's exactly what I expected. Uh, The median age is about 45. Uh, The typical occupation is either retired internet geek or current um, professional geek. And, you know, none of this is surprising to me. Um, we had, we did actually have one woman that, that was kind of shocking to me. We actually have one woman in the audience. So, uh, to you, we take our hat off to you. Um, so thanks. I could do my best Joey <laughs> Tribbiani impersonation. How you do it? And then we lost her. But then we wouldn't have any women in the audience. So I will refrain. So, um, thanks for that and keep them up, please. Don't send me another one if you already have, but uh, if you haven't pseudo, send me an email. Um, and my little bit of news, we, we experienced a blizzard of epic proportions in North Georgia today. We're calling it Snowpocalypse. We walked out the, the door this morning on the way to church. There were snow flurries blowing around. Of course, they were melting the second they touched any surface. But my kids still went, look at all the snow! I think the accumulation was roughly a millimeter. Um, and that's about it. But yeah. that, uh, that was enough to bring the city of Atlanta to a screeching halt. Of course, because no one knows how to drive in snow below a certain borderline. You know, I, I'm okay with that. That's the Mason-Dixon See, line. See, here's the problem, to you and you northerners don't understand this. Here in the south, we can drive on snow. The problem is we don't get snow. We get ice. And nobody can drive on ice. So, I don't have a problem driving yeah. on ice, no. but that's just me. Yeah, you say that. <laughs> Everybody says that. Yeah, I know how to do it. Crash, boom. But, uh, yeah, nobody knows how to drive. There's, you can't drive on it. There's no friction. There's no control. So. There you go trying to insert science. <laughs> sorry, and I'm sorry. What was I thinking? Debate. Especially on a Linux how show. Dare you. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that has no place on our we podcast, all know There's no place for intelligent debate <laughs> here on this show. So what's, It's not always. So, Chris, what, what's the deal with, with you and the, the intertubes? Oh, the fact that I have no intertubes to my house right now? Yes, it's a great, great story. In my drive to improve my connection speed for the everyday Linux audience, I called my my ISP and said, hey, I hear there's an upgrade in my plan. Upgrade me. Sounds like a great idea, right? You know, I, I get 12 down and just under a meg up. Sounds like a great upgrade, right? Yeah, not so much. Somewhere along the line, somebody miswired, or at least that's what the customer service reps are telling me, and they have to send somebody out to my place to test lines because, for some reason, to go from 7 to 12, a tech has to come in and do it. And now I have zero internet, and none of the techs that I customer service techs are able to resolve said issue without a tech, and uh, the nearest... the the tech for my area is booked up until Friday. So who is your, your internet provider? From who are you purchasing this non-service? Uh, CenturyLink. Centur- I had experience with CenturyLink back in Texas. CenturyLink sucks, just by yes. the way. So, but uh, they, 
<laughs> exactly. I bet you they're still charging yeah, they, you. You won't be uh, reimbursed okay. for this week off uh, at all. So that let's just just to recap. CenturyLink said, "Sure, we'll upgrade you. The soonest we can get a tech out there is in a week, but we're just going to go ahead and cut you off in the meantime." No, no, no. That's not what happened. They went to upgrade me, and supposedly the upgrade happened. But in the time, the uh, they must have to add another line a hard line to my service in order for it to happen for some unknown reason. It's not just a bandwidth switch like I would be under the assumption of, but that's me thinking, right? So, uh, yeah, I don't know, but we'll find out when the tech gets here on Friday. Uh, hopefully, though, because if it's the tech who I think it is, um, I know him personally, or I know his wife personally, and I might be able to beswagger them to come earlier. Be swagger? I'm, I'm not familiar with that term. <laughs> it's the whole idea of... Is that you know, some Canadian term you're trying to slip nah, in on us? No, no, it's not no Canadian term. It's my, it's Chris speech, I guess. Uh, <laughs> persuade. By the way, I just want to point out that in your, your little icon that we have up today, rather than the video, since that's not working, you appear to be laying on a patch of green grass. I wasn't aware that happened. In Montana, where where yeah. was that picture taken? Did you uh, did you travel down south? <laughs> Photoshop. No, that was actually taken in my backyard about uh, two summers ago. <laughs> astroturf. Astroturf. Right. It's actually seven degrees, and you swept away some of the snow off of the astroturf to be able to take that picture, right? <laughs> sure. If, if that if that helps you sleep at night, knock your socks off. Because I happen to actually, know for a fact that you Montana folks dress in short sleeves and t-shirts. During the bitterest cold winters, um, yeah, actually, mo- some yeah. of us do. Yeah, dur- during during the stuff that would shut down uh, the metropolitan city of Houston, uh, you're out there in shorts and a t-shirt, going, "Nice spring weather, eh?" <laughs> Minus the a, but yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah, I think they would say hoser. Nice spring weather, you hoser. That was no, terrible. Think, yeah, well, the, that, the funny- that was sort of a pan-European accent you just affected there. It was, it was kind of a little bit Canadian, a little bit French, and some Bobcat Goldthwait thrown in just for good measure. Well, I mean, come on, that's a that's an East Texan <laughs> trying to do Canadian, so and not not very well either one. So, all right. And and besides, I've been busy training for my That's upcoming five awesome, k. By the way, uh, yeah, I, uh, I applaud you of that, Seth. Uh, if if you're not uh, too um, reticent to speak, uh, what was your top weight and waist measurement? Well, I don't know because I avoided scales like the plague. But I guesstimate I lost. I guesstimate I was about three ninety. And my, I don't know, I would buy the, uh, I buy the special stretchy pants so that, you know, have the elastic all the way around them and the 52s were super tight and barely hanging on. Uh, and I would like have to, you know, kind of lay on the bed and suck in to get the belt to go on the last loop. So I was, I was up there and it was either, I either had to buy new clothes because I just couldn't get into them anymore or do something and. So uh, partly spurred on by our good friend, the former fat guy, uh, Seth began uh, making an effort yes. to turn his life around, and he went from uh, walking, you know, five steps a day to working toward running a five k. Good, good on you, brother. Good on you, definitely. Yep. Thank you. 
I, I'm I'm questing to abdicate my reigning couch potato championshipness into because there's nothing left for me to accomplish there. I've done all you can. Uh, I don't talk about potatoes. it much on this show. I talk about it a lot on One Meal One Workout, one of the other shows on the Element OP Network. Element opie.com not l-m-n-o-p as somebody recently said uh in an email um i wanted to get that one but it was taken uh i at my heaviest was 505 pounds and while i still have a very long way to go i am down uh, 85 pounds from that top weight yeah yeah not bad not bad at all i still can't run a 5k i can i can limp along i have very bad knees due to a number of reasons but chief among them is the fact that i weighed 505 pounds Uh, Mm -hmm. so when that comes down i expect the knees to get better but right now uh, walking is difficult running is out of the question so anyway yeah i i started my training on monday so i finished the first week and i set my timer for two minutes and 45 seconds and uh, i i i ran for a fat guy, so more like a lumber, um, for all of that. And then I worried the rest of the night if yeah. I was having a heart attack just because I was out of breath. Uh, but the last night I did like over five minutes and it's not like I was ready to run again, but you know, I, I wasn't as exhausted and that's only from Monday through Friday. So I'm looking to continue on Monday and increase my time each time. And Hopefully by the middle of May when our 5K is scheduled, I'll Good luck. be yeah. able to make and it. And the, uh, you know, the, the popular ELM method, E-L-E-M, eat less, exercise more. It's very simple. There's, there's, there, there's yes. no scientific um, calculations necessary. Just take what you ate yesterday, eat less of that today, tomorrow eat less of that, and then move more. Yeah. Or what I tell myself is get up off your butt and, cl- and quit too. blaming other people because you're fat. So, uh, you know. So anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't want to turn this show into you know a diet show. But uh, I I think it's safe to say that the majority of our audience is out of shape. I think that's a safe assessment to make because geeks in general are either too fat or too thin. Just because you're skinny doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Um, You know, my brother is one of those guys who's been underweight his whole life, um, and is a smoker, and you know he's thin, but he's not healthy. So, uh, you know, get healthy, people. We we want to keep your your giant brains around longer, and in order to do that, you have to bring your bodies along for the ride. Yep. Speaking of the ride, who wants to go to Mars? Definitely. Well, one of the first space tourists ever, um, Dennis Tito, a former uh, scientist at NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Uh, says he wants to send a married man and a woman to Mars um, in 2018. Did I get that date right? I think that's right. There's a there's very coming up uh, yes. very soon coming up. There's a short window of opportunity where our planet and Mars are aligned in such a way that the trip would take just over a year or just under a year and a half, about 500 days. Uh, otherwise, it takes about four years. So he wants to he wants to buy a re, a ready made spacecraft and ready made rockets uh, because he's got the begillions to do that and he wants to send somebody up there not land on Mars but just do a loop around and come back and he suggests that the best way to do that would uh, would be to send uh, a committed couple a man and a woman because when you're out there on day three hundred seventy eight in the vastness of space you're gonna want somebody you can cuddle up to. 
Um, <laughs> however, I've been married uh, 18 years now, and I could say that if my wife and I were stuck together in a small capsule for 500 days, only one of us would come back, and it wouldn't be me. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, you could do the two mile club, the ten mile club, the hundred mile, <laughs> the seventeen club. billion mile club. <laughs> yeah, you know, you could have a whole yeah. club named after you. So that's got to be worth it for some. Yeah, just achievement unlocked it. left and right on that one. Definitely. Uh, so it's interesting. It's ambitious. Uh, sure. The biggest issue now we can we obviously can send vessels there. Uh, we've never brought one back. Uh, mm-hmm. So so that's a challenge. And uh, keeping a human alive uh, in space is not so difficult in terms of uh, life support. Um, it, if you make the ship big enough and you make enough, you know, rebreathers and things like that, we can we can do that. We're going to have to invent some technologies there. But the biggest issue is radiation. Um, without uh, three feet per square inch of of water, in other words, atmosphere, uh, there's a lot of radiation in space, and even pilots who fly at high altitudes end up suffering uh, radiation-related disorders over time. Uh, So it would be difficult. At this point, with the current technology, it's not possible to keep people alive in space, uh, in outer space, far space, that long. So he's he's got some challenges. He's going to have to invent some stuff. Um, But he says it's not – he's not trying to to, uh, make money off the deal. He doesn't want to – um, make it a business, not space tourism. This is purely philanthropic just to say we did it, and he's going to foot the bill as much as he can and hopefully raise the money from other people. Definitely cool. I think it would be cool. So if, you, uh, if you're if you a fit man uh, married to a fit woman and you think you could live together in a small space for a year and a half, uh, give Dennis Tito a call. You know, I'm not fit now, but I'm getting that way. So maybe by you got five years. That's plenty of time. Yeah. So, I, of course, I have a better chance of getting in shape than I do of finding a woman <laughs> in that time. So. Oh, I'm you glad said you it, said not it. Us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, moving on, we have a, a an announcement as as has uh, is becoming the practice. People come to us and and ask us to announce uh, Linux fests and things of that nature, and we are happy to do it. Uh, and this week, uh, we have been asked to plug the NELF, the Northeast Linux Fest, coming at you March sixteenth and seventeenth at the Harvard Science Center at Harvard Yard in boston so if you if you happen to live in the northeast area you're a geek and you got a free weekend the odds are pretty high of all of those three converging frankly uh (laughs) check out the northeast linux (laughs) fest where we've got some uh some great uh guest speakers coming up um including um john mad dog hall and uh, Samuel Klein, uh, and a few others. So check it out, Northeast Linux Fest. Any other comment on that, guys? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say we're uh, trying to schedule one of the leaders of this to be on the show next week. So I thought that would be pretty cool. Uh, Jonathan and Nadu. Jonathan Nadu. Nadu, probably Nadu. Nadu, yeah. Nadu, I think it is. 
Yeah, so, and we're actually uh, just working on finalizing it. He's already agreed to the show, just hoping, you know, we can get our times to align uh, and all of that stuff. So, we're looking forward to it. So, more about the Northeast Linux Fest next week. And Jonathan is notable for other um, achievements as well, which we will talk about next week. Then, yes. Big it should be a great teaser. show. Big market teaser. Big market teaser. Come back and listen. Uh, in a little... Uh, in the way of uh, listener feedback, uh, Joe from Washington State uh, sends this email. He says, hi, Mark, Seth, and Chris. The last three shows were great. The 82 before it, not so much. Um, the topics were 100% relevant to me. I'm going to wire my house with Cat5e and install a gigabit switch, install a Linux firewall, and hopefully put in a server slash NAS strictly for storage and backup. I was soaking up everything you were putting out. It was like you three were my very own geek staff of consultants for free. Sweet. I have a couple of questions. It sounds like Backup PC is cross-platform, but will it go on free NAS or NAS for free or Unraid? Uh, Google search doesn't show much promise. Uh, I will say it probably will, but not out of the box. You're going to have to do some tweaking on that mm -hmm. one, but I suspect it'll probably work. Yeah, but with Backup PC, you can just buy a computer with a couple of SATA slots and... Just right. make your own. Or just build so. a VM somewhere else and point it at FreeNAS is what I would yeah. do, frankly. That would make it easier. Right. Um, then he goes on to say, if not, it makes my selection of a server OS pretty simple. Ubuntu or a Debian derivative. Uh, would it be foolish to run PFSense as my router and a separate untangle box in bridged mode for ad blocker module? Is Untangle's firewall functionality as good as PFSense slash smoothwall? I'm really drawn to Untangle's ad blocker, but unsure if it's worth running two boxes. Um, no, don't run two boxes. Untangle is good enough. Just yep. run Untangle. It'll do the job fine. Uh, at the uh, at the school where I used to work, we ran uh, over a thousand devices behind um, Untangle. And it was fine. Yeah, I love Untangle. Uh, I run PFSense at my house, and I love it too. But if I were to pick one, I'd say Untangled makes it easier to manipulate. PFSense is kind of uh, Spartan-y, right. I would say. I would say overall you have less control over Untangle, but it does what you need to do. So that the control, the fine green control that you need, uh, that, that you can get from PFSense or the others... You, you don't necessarily need that uh, in a home. Man, it's got a pretty GUI, and That's I'm right. all about the GUI. So it's GUI kid approved. It is. It's uh, Java-based, so if you're scared of Java, run. But uh, otherwise, it's good. Um, and he says, uh, goes on to say, the, uh, the machine, oh, it says, do you worry about power consumption? The machine I plan to use for the Untangle Boris box has an 89-watt CPU. If I end up with two Boris boxes, a server, and a, a home theater PC uh, that are all on 24-7, and most are 65-watt processors or more, will it be cost-prohibitive um, to run them all? Would it be worth the investment to buy a new lower-power Atom-based machines for Boris boxes, servers, NASes, and home theater PCs? Um I remember whenever uh, the Atom processor first came out, Untangle was specifically said that you probably would not see good results on that. But again, now Atoms are dual core. so uh, And if you only have a couple of devices, I don't know that it would be a big deal. I don't worry about power, frankly. 
Um, but that's because I have a wife and three daughters, and I'm the only one in the house who knows how to A, close a door, and B, turn off a light. So the uh, the power consumption of my computers in the house pale in comparison to the power consumption of air conditioning the outdoor and lighting rooms where nobody has been in for hours. However, if you are super concerned about that, it would probably be worth the investment to go ahead and buy the lower power stuff. Um Maybe not Atom for your firewall, but for everything else, my home theater PC runs on an Atom. Um, just because you get the benefit of new hardware, it's always going to be more efficient. They just get better over time. I wouldn't yeah. say, uh, you know, uh, plug them in and see what happens. If your if your power bill jumps, make the adjustment. Don't go out and buy stuff just to see, because you may see that you're going to spend $1,000 on new stuff and your electric bill goes up 5 bucks a month. It takes a, long five, long, a lot of $5 months to offset the cost of that thousand dollars worth of new hardware yeah yep so just check it out that way and then he moves on to say instead of ubuntu server could i use a myth boost myth desktop distribution for server functions like backup pc as well as dvr functionality and have one box serve two functions the answer is yes but the odds are much of the media you want to back up is what's on that home theater pc thus negating the purpose of a backup if you put them in one place. Right. Um, the only exception there would be if he's got multiple boxes he's backing up. Right. You know, if, if he's got a couple yeah. of laptops and a, you know, a couple of desktop PCs, um, it, it, that's that would be a hard question to answer without knowing what your environment looks like. Um, off, off cuff, I would say, yeah, it would be okay to run a Mythbuntu and run backup PC on it at the same time. Um, just make sure you have something off-siting your Mythbuntu desktop, right. and then you should be okay. My rule of thumb is there There are certain devices that do one thing, they're, they're where I demand a unitasker. A firewall, as we've m- m- mentioned before, must be a unitasker. I believe yep. a backup device must be a unitasker. I would never ask my backup to do anything else. I would never ask another server to do backup. If I'm going to go to the trouble of setting up a backup server, it's going to do no- nothing but back up. That's just how I work. See, Mark, and, and I would be, I would say that would work for everything, but if he's going to run Mythbuntu as his media center and a backup, because if he has something like Crash Plan on it, so he's backing up all his peripherals to the Mythbuntu machine, and then the Mythbuntu machine is then sending it off to Crash Plan or right. send, whoever. I would say that would make the best bang for your buck if money is an issue. If money's not an issue, then yes, separate those two and be happier with a separated uh, backup server and, and a media center. And then he goes on to ask, for Cat5 e-wire, the best prices are for 500-foot spools that are copper-clad aluminum. Is this junk compared to 100% cat copper? Uh, would you use uh, copper-clad aluminum in your house? Is Cat6 the better choice? Um I'm going to answer those questions in reverse order. Cat6 is the better choice. If it's not cost prohibitive, go that route simply because it's a better spec. It's higher quality. Copper clad aluminum, in my opinion, is just as good as running copper um, because the physics of electrons are that they run 90% of the electrons run along the outside of any wire. If the outside of the wire is copper, They're not going to be running down the aluminum. Only 10% of the electrons are going to be doing that. And even then, aluminum is a pretty darn good conductor. So I wouldn't worry about it. My issue with copper-clad aluminum is it's harder to work with. It's stiffer. It doesn't pull as well. 
in a house when you're only going a short distance, that's not a big deal. But when I was doing enterprise wiring, I always went for copper. Yeah, and I, I second that. And I would definitely, if it was me and I was rewiring, or not rewiring, but adding wire to a house, I wouldn't even bother with the cheap stuff because if it's your house, you know, spend the money, get a good spec, do it once. Because otherwise, down the road, when you want to respec it and maybe sell it, if it's already wired with Cat Six, then you don't have to rewire. We rewire it, um, and just also make sure it's the appropriate spec for being in walls. Um, nothing worse than having something that, when it smolders, it emits right. toxic fumes. Yeah, that means you want plenum rated. Even if you don't need plenum rated, buy plenum rated. Yep. Uh, 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 plenum is. I'm going to break this down super simple for people who don't know. The plenum is the space between the ceiling and the roof also known as the attic. Uh, and if you're going to run wires in there, it has to be, uh, the casing has to be designed in such a way that when it burns, it doesn't put off any toxic fumes. Uh, so there is plenum rated environments and non-plenum rated environments. I always bought plenum rated cable just in case. It doesn't cost yep. much more. It is a little stiffer. It is a little harder to work with, uh, but it's worth it for the safety. That's yep. that's just the way. I, in my house, I would do Cat 6, plenum, uh, copper. That's the way I'd go. Don't do Cat 6E. There are some people out there selling Cat 6E. That spec isn't actually rat, uh, ratified yet. People are built selling cable based on what that spec may be, and I never trust that. Besides that, Cat 6, Cat 6 is good for 10 gigabits. You're going to be fine for a while. Oh, yeah. that's And now I would echo everything you just said, Mark. Okay. Echo, echo, echo. And then he continues on, thanks for the shows. Don't worry so much about the length of the shows. The longer, the better for guys like me with big ambitions, but no IT background. I am your target audience, and I enjoy the long shows. In fact, the more in-depth shows and how-to on some of this stuff would be greatly appreciated. You've set the pretty bar pretty high, and I hope next show will live up to the high expectations you've set. Sorry about that. Not going to happen. Uh, we're already halfway in, and we're not there. Um, as for the length of the shows, I have honestly never worried about the length of the show. I don't want to. Uh, I cut things off when I think they're dying. You know, I don't want to keep beating the same dead horse after we've buried it and exhumed it and done DNA tests and then continued to beat it. Uh, but I don't worry about long shows because you know you can push stop and then push play again later. It's not a big yeah. deal. Um, I will say, on the other hand, uh, that in-depth technical things generally don't translate well to audio i've tried it it doesn't work which is why we try to keep things very superficial and refer you to more detailed resources so and a lot of times there are and a lot of times those other resources are much more in depth than we could be on this show right that and in that way we're not saying wrong stuff because anytime you put one participle out of place the internet lets you know so I try to be wrong as little as possible. Otherwise, the literal net will kill us. <laughs> yes. The literal net is out there. Uh, okay, on to the news of the week. Thank courtesy of Mr. Seth Weird News Anderson. Um, happy birthday, Raspberry Pi. Why, it seems like you were just born. Yes, uh, it actually debuted February 29th, 2012. And it has sold over a million units since then. So there is a pretty big market for the uh, mini computer. 
Uh, so, you know, I don't know, a million Raspberry Pi stacked end to end might make it to the end of your driveway. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a year old and it's not one of, it doesn't seem to be one of those flash in the pans that was a big debut and then died. It sticks around and it has some staying power. So I think it's pretty cool for enthusiast and hobbyist type people. I have not purchased one yet. I intend to, I want to build a second home theater PC for the TV upstairs, uh, my TV in the bedroom right now. It's, it's got the, you know, the, the DVR there, but I, I don't have access to all the movies I have downstairs. A raspberry Pi would be perfect for that. It's hardware accelerated. I could just point it over the network at the storage where all the other movies are. I wouldn't have to duplicate the storage or anything like that. It's, it's one of those things that's been in my, um, to do list for a while, but it hasn't made it over to the to done list. And I think there are a lot of people like me who who think it's cool, who plan to buy it and haven't yet. So I think that first million is just um, a uh, a flash in the pan. I think they're gonna they're gonna keep growing, uh, and there you know there there will be <clears throat> uh, different revisions with with better processing power for less cost over time. I think the Pi is really the first in a new breed of microcomputers uh, yep. than anything else. And you know, and with things being more cloud centric, how much you know. How much do you need? I mean, granted, you can do tons of stuff at home, but you can also be pretty functional with a good connection to the Internet. So, you know, you don't need uh, a 16-core, 18 gigahertz processor with 4 terabytes of RAM uh, to get anything done. Oh, you done. mean the new, you mean the quad, the new uh, Nexus 4? That's what you just described. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So, I mean, it's great to have, um, but, you know, as long as you got the bandwidth to the Internet... So that's why the Raspberry Pi probably won't do good at my house because I got I got <laughs> for this point. I need to cache right. the internet on my server to get anything done. So. You know, Google's been working on that. I don't think they've quite cracked that nut yet. But if maybe you can do something they haven't. Yeah, I'll, I'll work on that. Uh, and and we like to point out uh, when uh, Linux geeks are in demand, uh, Linux hosting uh, the demand for servers is going up and up and up. Yes. Well, um, that shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, in the fourth quarter of 2012, um, the hardware revenue for servers running Linux was up over 12%, and uh, Linux servers now represent over 20% of all server revenue, which is, um, that's up from the quarter. Microsoft was also up, but not by as large a percentage, and Unix is what is taking the tumble. Unix is down to well under 20%. So Linux is the second most, the second biggest selling server uh, platform running these days. So Microsoft is still the biggest, but uh, Linux is gaining ground. And you know, it really. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Mark. Okay, I'll go. Um, I was going to say, I wonder if that is any indication of all of these. Um, you, I mean, I've I've been seeing in the news a lot that there's been you know this server compromised or that person's server compromised. It'd be interesting to know if they were being compromised because they're running a Windows-based server, or if they're running a Linux Unix-based server. Um, that's one correlation that's never actually been brought to light, and that might indicate why some of these people are moving over. Or did the article didn't say if these are new purchases or just migrations. So it'd be interesting to find out if they were one way or the other, but if it's because of people losing connect, you know, their servers to hackers, you know, the Linux Unix servers are a lot harder, hard, more hardened 
than the Windows one usually. You know, most of the attacks today aren't OS level, they're application level. Most of those are SQL injections, and it doesn't matter what you're running SQL on right? Uh, or even which flavor of SQL. Yeah, uh, and actually the last two that I've read about in the news was one that targeted Linux and one that targeted Macs. So um, were the last big ones that, I mean, of course, the, every day there's a there's some there's some vulnerability out there that's being exploited but the last two that kind of made the new circles i check out were actually mac and then linux so uh but yeah well you know part of a lot of it has to do with the licensing costs too you know windows is going to charge you and then you got to get your client access license and then you got to get your license to get your license and then you got to get the (laughs) we're not going to sue you for getting this license uh whereas linux you can just like download centos or on Ubuntu or something and throw it on there and be up and going. So I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, initial cost, but um, you know, and, and they're a lot more flexible, you know, windows. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you on Seth uh, on that, Seth. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, it's a matter of um, the bottom dollar. The Right. It, it, I'm, you know, Mark's hosting company. All right. Uh, and I'm, I'm selling hosting to my customers. There is a limit to how much a machine can host. The bandwidth at this point is pretty much unlimited. I can go out and buy, as long as I live uh, in a backbone location, uh, I can get infinite bandwidth at almost you know no cost because my, my clients are paying that cost, right? I'm passing that on to them, right. so that's not a big deal. Um, storage space is getting so cheap now, and in fact is people aren't putting a lot of stuff online like they used to with with good deduplication and things like that storage uh capacity has outstripped demand uh for a long time it really comes down to uh how many accounts can i throw on a box and when i fill up i've still got my san over here i don't need any more storage i've still got bandwidth coming in i just need more processors so that's all i care about i'm going to go buy a box of processors and i'm going to throw it up and the cheapest way to do that as seth alluded to is to throw linux on it it does everything you need yep. and it doesn't cost anything that's why linux is in the uh, unix is in the toilet right now there is no benefit zero benefit to running unix over linux you just pay for it instead now there are some type cases where you know depending on the application you're hosting you got to have a windows box if you're running asp you got to have a Windows box. So as as I Mark's hosting company, I have to have a contingent of hosting uh, of win- uh, Windows boxes. But for the most part, I'm just going to throw up Linux boxes, not pay anybody a dime for it, and and bottom maximize my bottom line. Yeah. It, well, yep. and plus, you know, uh, there are some exceptions, but the Windows OS background processes eats up more of your available processing power than a Linux uh, has the base and again that's not a huge differential but it could be um you know just having the os if if and i'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air but if the windows os uses 10 percent more system resources you know for every 10 linux box every 10 windows boxes you throw up there you get the you can get the equivalent function from 11 linux it's just another way where linux is uh do you understand what i'm saying or did i just i'm I'm okay. with you on that resource okay. efficiency. I don't. I don't know. That's why I'm. I'm made it that up, it matters. So. I mean, yeah, the numbers might be like one percent, so it may be so low it doesn't right. really matter. Um, but you know, because I've run Windows servers and I've run Linux servers, and and Windows servers are not um, as resource intensive as the Windows desktops. So if you're running a full-on GUI CentOS install 
and running a full-on GUI Windows uh, Server 2008 install, not sure there's a big difference there. Um, I guess the main difference is you can choose to install CentOS without the Well, I mean, I guess you can do that with Windows now. You can get the, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's like um, Core or Set or something like that. I think think that's what it's called, Windows Server Core, where it's basically Windows without the GUI. Uh, Right. Yeah, I believe you're right. I think it is core is what they call it. And one of the things we love to do on this show, uh, and on every show I'm on, frankly, it's a passion of mine, is is rip apart bad reporting. So I'm going to read a bad headline, and then we're going to tear it apart without actually caring much about the story. Windows XP and Firefox browser amass worst vulnerability over the past 25 years. Oh, the horror! Oh, no. Yeah, and then, you know, but if you think about it, Windows XP has been around for 10 plus years, and Firefox has been around for a long time. And when you compare those with something like the iOS, which has only been around for half that time, well, of course it's not going to have the same number of vulnerabilities. And when you compare that to, like, say, Linux 10, well, Golly, I mean, that was here yesterday, gone the day before. And so it didn't have time to get the vulnerabilities that um, this article. And so they kind of go on to talk about that in the article. But, you know, they just tried to throw something out there to grab headlines and get people going. It's that fear mongering, but this time kind of in reverse. And I just, come on, Ellen, whatever your last name is, you can do better than that. Sorry, I I can't pronounce her last name. Yeah, as... As as one line in the article puts it this way, in the 25 years of recorded vulnerabilities, there was a peak of 6,612 vulnerabilities in 2006. The worst year overall um, for high severity ones was in 2007 at 3,000. So there was a total of 6,000, 3,000 of them were the worst. So if you cherry pick the data and you say the worst of the worst and we combine them all together, guess what? Windows XP and Firefox are at the top because of the they heap. were around then. Okay. Well, not only that, but that's what everybody was using. Yeah. So if, if most people are using Windows XP, then yes, most of the vulnerabilities are going to be in Windows XP. It's a numbers game. Right. So just, it's bad reporting. Uh, actually, the, the article isn't terrible. The headline is terrible. And often, in, in case you don't know this, how it works in the... Um, a journalism world a guy writes an article and a totally separate guy writes the headline who may or may not have even read the article the headline is designed to make you click the article is designed to to feed you information and they're not necessarily yeah the same and like thing. one thing they did was they considered the linux kernel and listed total vulnerabilities for it but every version of windows was given its own total so you had the linux kernel versus Windows XP versus Windows Vista versus Windows. So, of course, since the Linux kernel has been around for, what, 20 years now, it's going to have tons more vulnerabilities than Windows 7, which came out a couple of years ago. It, it's, you know, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, you can quote a headline to grub some stuff, but come on, guys. So... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, continue on uh, in the spate of news there, Samsung, um, Google, and a few other companies may be a little concerned that Samsung is too big. Right. Um, and this is an article from the Wall Street Dur- Journal that I uh, I found on OS News, which is a site I like. Um, the thing that Google doesn't like is that Samsung 
it, it's not so much like Android versus Apple. It's kind of become Samsung versus Apple. And Samsung has become so big and so popular that they could kind of do what the Kindle Fire did and rebrand Android and like put their own thing on top of it and make it not really Android anymore. In which case, Google is all of a sudden kind of left out and left out of the uh, mobile platform wars because all HTC, even their own Motorola, everything, none of those phones have really got traction that Samsung has. So that's why Google is kind of worried that, you know, what if uh, Samsung breaks away from the Android? Uh, thing and does more like a Tizen or something like that and makes it not so much Samsung's Android, but Samsung calls it something else, uh, then where would Google be? So that that's what has them concerned. And the person who wrote this article, they're kind of all for it because they see it breaking up the uh, mobile market and making room for other competitors. Because, you know, if, if two players get so big that they dominate, there's really no room for niche players. And uh, so, but if Samsung breaks away, they see it as kind of opening the market up to people like uh, Firefox OS, Selfish, or even, you know, Ubuntu's trying to get in there with their uh, smartphone and tablet OS. Okay, here, here's my... Okay, here, here's my think, uh, thinking on that. That's utter garbage. Um, and here's why. Right. Android is open source, or, uh, or large parts of Android. The right. Google goodness is not open source. So there's a thing there. If you buy a non-Google-sanctioned tablet, you don't get right. all the goodies of Google. So Samsung's going to have to try to duplicate that, and that's development dollars. And and they're just and Samsung has tried to do that and failed in a number of categories. Um, secondly, um, anybody can go out and fork Android and do whatever they want. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a Samsung thing. Samsung is a hardware company. They're just producing what the market wants, right? Their their method is let's just throw right. everything out there and see what sticks. We can iterate really iterate really quickly. We can design stuff. We we own Chinese manufacturing. We can do whatever we want. So let's just just throw things out there. You want a five inch screen? We'll do a five inch screen. You want a ten inch screen? We'll do a ten inch screen. We'll see what happens. Uh, Google, on the other hand, um, is playing things a little closer to the vest, trying to be more Apple like. And we can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing and saying, this is the reference platform. This is the one we know works. This is good. This is solid. Uh, copy this, and we know everything is good. And some people choose to do that. Some people copy the reference. Other people don't. So I don't really see that there's any way anybody's going to corner any kind of an open source market because you can go and do right. whatever you but, want with you it. Know, but I can kind of see Google's position at this if Samsung breaks away and kind of forks Android, then Google loses the prestige of being the dominant smartphone player or, you know, or mobile OS player because all of a sudden it's not Android. It's whatever Samsung calls their stuff that true. It might have Android in it, but all of a sudden, you know, so you. Right. But do you think that the Kindle fire hurt no, Google as a company? They weren't the number one maker of their segment whereas samsung you know apple has the biggest model but samsung has more models and an overall larger market share or if not a significant market share whereas the kindle fire really didn't hmm. mark where'd you go <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting point um there's a lot of 
I'm not sure what the big what the big deal is there because I think Mark's got the better point on this one. Um, I'm not sure why Google's having such an issue with Samsung because I thought Samsung and Google had a great partnership there for a long time, and now all of a sudden there's an issue. Well, any, something doesn't smell right. Well, any any time your friend uh, who is your little buddy grows up to be the big buddy, you got to worry a little bit. And and guys, when I step away to blow my nose, you got to cover for me, not just pause and go. Uh, yeah. Where'd Mark but go? You've got to do on. it when I start my that. talk, not when but I'm wrapping fun. it up. <laughs> it's like I finished my thought and I don't have another one yet. So, but then you know, come, go ahead. No, you. I, I go ahead. I I just think it's interesting. It's a great time we live in because, like you say, there are all these other alternatives out there. Uh, you know, there is the Ubuntu phone and the and the uh, um, Firefox phone which is a totally different take on that. We haven't talked about that much on this show. The Firefox phone is going back to what the iOS was at first, web apps, and it doesn't have the horsepower or the storage to do anything locally. It's depending on the web. Uh, and it's you know it's the cloud computing uh, phone OS. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. But I think, I think it's a little silly for anybody to be worried about anybody at this point. Uh, yeah. Because because they all you know again there's the Android code and then there's the Google secret sauce and right now it's the Google secret sauce that's distinguishing people. If somebody else can make something as good and tack that onto Android, then maybe Wait. Google should be worried. But at this point, I, I don't think there's anything for them to worry. Maybe they're concerned. Maybe they've yeah, seen some prototypes, and that's disease. why they're concerned. I mean, look what happened to Corel with WordPerfect. Yeah. Um, and let's see, yeah, Corel had um, what? What was the thing before Active Directory? Novell. Novell had their thing, and they were like, "Ah, oh, we're the best." Okay, <laughs> and all of a sudden, Microsoft said, "Hey, let's try to get into that." Hey, it sucks now, but we'll keep doing it and making it great. So, you know, at least you can't accuse right. Google of having frontrunners disease. So, and believe it or not, there's still people out there using Lotus Notes. I just don't understand. I don't either. That one I don't understand either. Uh, and a, a, a little-known company you might not have heard of called Jolla, that's what I'm going with, J-O-L-L-A, um, says that they're going to sort of skip over the entire U.S. market because the patent issues here are too yeah, complex. Um, they're just not going to sell Their CEO, us. and this happened at TechCrunch, explains that his company will focus on China Finland and the rest of Europe first, and his quote is, the U.S. market is not on the radar as yet. As he says, the patent landscape there raises a barrier of entry to newcomers. So um, considering the patent mess in the U.S. is only getting worse, expect to see more of this in the future. Jola is making a wise decision by ignoring the U.S. Has a young technology company, you're far better off focusing your attention elsewhere. Um, that's kind of a sad thought, but I think it's probably pretty true. You know, between well, there's only there's only one point on which I agree with that, and that is that the U.S. is where the money is. That's it's where you know we are more willing to spend money on our tech than than China is. China has money and they spend it, but the Chinese devices are much lower end uh, and much less expensive. Uh, so you know, it, it depends on which market you're going to go after. Do you want to make a little bit of money on a billion people? Or do you make a want to make a lot of money on yeah. ten million people? And, and I don't lawsuits. know. I don't remember if we talked about uh, it yeah. on this on this uh, or not. But China has passed the United States in terms of uh, mobile devices. 
you know, we used to be number one, but China is now number one, and I doubt we'll ever reclaim the title simply because there's so many more Chinese than there are Americans. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're yeah. gonna have to get busy getting busy if yeah. we wanna if we wanna reclaim that uh, caption. Um and in the continuing saga of Samsung versus Apple, uh another judge uh came back and said, You know that's a billion dollars in damages. And I, I just wanted to read math. this because I thought it was I thought it was just kind of funny. And uh so uh Judge Lucy Coe has almost halved the one billion in damages the jury awarded to Apple. Coe found two main errors in the way the jury calculated the damages awarded to Apple. They used Samsung's profits to determine the amount the company owed for infringing some of Apple's utility patents. A practice only appropriate when calculating damages old when design patents have been infringed. They also erred when calculating the time period Apple should be awarded damages for. Co explains that Apple was only due damages for product sales that occurred after Apple informed Samsung of its belief that the violations were taking place. It's almost as if the bunch of random people in this jury had no clue what they were doing in what is possibly the most complex patent trial in history. <laughs> the U.S. trial uh, jury system in action right there 12 yeah. random people um expected to make decisions about highly esoteric things and what do you know sometimes they get it wrong i, I it's not going to surprise me if eventually this entire judgment is overturned and i'm sure samsung is is uh, rapidly trying to make that happen just just to refresh your memory um apple came out with the ipad Samsung came out with a square slab of glass with four corners, and Apple said, you can't do that. We made the iPad. And as ridiculous as that is, it held up in court. Yep. Apple owns the square slab of glass now. Sadly. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> yes. I have a, uh, a, dresser, a mirror on my dresser in my bedroom that I expect to be sued over any time now. And you because can it's square it. and That's... made of glass. Does it have... I was going to say, does it have rounded corners? Uh, it does, in fact, have rounded oh, corners. And when I swipe my fingers across it, it gets greasy. So that's a that's a swipe action. So I expect uh, I expect to be sued over that in the near future. Yes. <laughs> and just one other thing in our continuing trend of it's good to catch up uh, on your Linux knowledge. There are a few U.S. colleges who are now offering degrees in linux why there's a yeah. big demand and not much so supply. and surprisingly um yes. i don't i couldn't tell if this list uh, on this um article on linuxandlife.com was um exhaustive or if it's just a sampling but uh from the from the gist of the article it seems like you can get a lot of linux courses at a lot of different places but only a few um you can actually get a degree in linux whereas i know lots of things have degrees and programs that mirror the Microsoft path to like a uh, certification and training, uh, you know, and things like that. If only there were some sort of academy focused on Linux where somebody could go and acquire Linux knowledge it for be. only $20 a month. I, that would be oh, awesome. That would be awesome. You know, I, I think we should try to find somebody who does such a thing. Yeah, maybe maybe there's somebody out there uh, doing that that would like to sponsor 
the show and then we could talk about them. But right now, we'll just have to say, if only there were some sort of academy centered on Linux. Maybe somewhere. Maybe possibly. Maybe if, maybe if I could put the words academy and Linux in some sort of search engine and go to some place. And if you went to elementopi.com, you might even awesome. find a link to a discounted offering. But I, I don't know if such things are possible. Yeah, it, it could be. Maybe maybe if we went back, uh, you know, maybe two episodes. I seem to recall we talked about something. I don't know. I, I'll just leave it as an exercise to the listener. Linux skills are, are, are a big deal, folks. Um, they're becoming a much bigger deal than they used to be. If you're a geek, yeah. you might as well be a Linux geek. Right? That's right. That's that's all I got to say about that. Might if you're well. a geek, you might as well be a Linux geek. And you might as well learn the command line because Sad- that gets even more. Sadly but true. <laughs> yes. I must Sa- agree represent the command line, Chris. I rue the That's right. But yeah. uh, I must agree. Yeah. <laughs> Feather in my cap. You know, I've never found... I'm. I, yeah, it's, it's dangerous to use words like always and never. But I'm going to step out on this limb and say I don't... I think I've never found a GUI-only command for which nobody has ever made, excuse me, a command line-only uh, command for which nobody has ever made a GUI. I, I have never come across such a beast. You know, I, I would agree with you to the point, except for when you start throwing in, like, switches and the the higher functions of a certain program. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to argue with that, because you're right. You do well, get more control when you drop to the command line even i well, the windows it, it's kid like you said you know drop to the command sense, line from you time can to time. you can do more with it but that's primarily command line and untangle is primarily gooiness and you know you can get granular with untangle but exactly. you know there are command lines you can run on it but for the most part it takes the most popular command lines and switches and packages them in a gooey form so, uh, and, and that's most programs do that. Um, GUI you versions, go. they take the most popular commands and the most popular switches of those commands and present them to you. Just try to be fair Representing and, oh wait, I can't say GUI. that, I would get sued. <laughs> fair and impartial. <laughs> Im- yes, fair, I'll say impartial. Fair, fair and, impartial. and not imbalanced. There you go. There you go. Which is a load of crap because we're partial. The difference is we let you know right up front what our biases are. I really think that's the best way to be honest. Instead of pretending you don't have any biases, just say at the start of the show, this is my bias, and then move on. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to look at an article written on CIO.com called Six Reasons to Pay for Open Source Software. This is a discussion we've had many times uh, in many different fashions. Can you make money off of open uh, open source? Is there a good um, uh, trail to profitability in open source? Should you pay? for open source is there a moral imperative to pay for open source software well we're going to talk about yes. um here the, did you guys actually read the article it, it's uh, been it's a okay couple of be weeks honest. but yes okay. um i haven't obviously okay all right 
So uh, the 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 article is called Six Reasons to Pay for Open Source. I'm obviously not going to read the whole article to you. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, in fact, I will paste it right now into the chat room for those who are watching live over at elementopi.com slash live, and you can uh, check that out. Um, and you can uh, you can follow along. I'm just going to hit the highlights, okay? Uh, number one, enterprise-grade support. When you pay for something, you get that all-important 800 number that you can call 24 hours a day. And if you're in business, that's a big deal. Um, yeah. I have had this conversation countless times with my bosses. Here's a tool. It's open source. It's free. It's really high quality. And they get back with, yeah, but who's going to support it? Me! That's what you're paying me for! But nobody sees that. They want that support number. So there you go. One reason to buy Red Hat rather than setting up CentOS, is for the enterprise-grade support. And we can come back and, and discuss these later. I'm going to go ahead and run right through them. Number two, input into new future features. If you're paying for something, you generally get at the front of the line uh, for new features. Obviously, um, if there's a, a product that's being used by uh, paying customers and freeload, I mean non-paying customers, uh, the people who are paying for it, uh, they're going to be listened to more attentively if there's a change request that all your paying customers are customers are making and none of your unpaid customers and there's another change request that all of your unpaid customers and none of your paid customers are asking for which one are you going to do you're (laughs) going to do the paid one Uh, number three tested stable products rapid bug fixes and predictable life cycles in 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 essence red hat doesn't let you use it doesn't give you fedora they give you red hat you they don't they don't put the the experimental stuff into their product it's stable it's tested sometimes it's a bit out of date as a result of that Uh, they iterate quickly they fix things quickly and they have a predictable life cycle we're going to change this every x months or every x years and you can as as an enterprise that's important you need to know how to budget these sort of uh, changes uh, to budget in terms of time and in times of money number four extra functionality you get more stuff when you pay for it it's really all there is to it Uh, number five integrated hardware and software solutions for example untangle you can use the free product or you can buy an untangle box pre-configured and set up with all the uh, optimization already done it's a better experience i've done both it's better to buy the the hardware the just untangle software works on say 95 to 99 percent of hardware out there but there are just some things it does not work on so after you spend a day driving yourself insane because it won't work and you finally get around to the forums there's a known issue with this particular model you shouldn't use it you should use this and you're like ah so yeah right and number six Low-cost platforms for proprietary products. If you're paying for somebody to use their product and you're selling a product based off of it, you're going to run into a lot uh, fewer legal hassles. There's going to be a lot less uh, opportunity to be sued than if you're running open source and somebody doesn't like the fact that you're using their code uh, to make money off of. So if you're already using it from somebody who is making money off of it, they've solved those problems for you. So those are the six reasons to pay for open source products. Just a quick uh, overview of the article, and now we can discuss it. So I'll let you guys go first. Well, I have some I, comments, uh, but I don't know what you Chris, have to say I'll let you it. go first. Well, well, I was going to say for just my quick Jerry reading over the sub over the topic. You know, most of those are pretty much no brainers. 
Um, a couple of them are, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, but I don't, you know, for example, the number two, import on new features. Yeah, as a paying customer, I have ideas of what would make the software better, but chances are my voice is going to be muted over the developer's voice. So I think that one should be just scratched out right away because, you know, I can't go to, I don't know, let's say VNC, for example, and pay them, even though they offer it free. Um, they're not they're not going to listen to my suggestions right up front. They're going to be going through the developer channel first. So, But they will listen in aggregate to their paid people before they listen in aggregate to their free users. Correct. But I think the vo- it's going to be the over... The overwhelming voice is going to win over regardless if it's paid or free. Because even the paid and free people are going to have the same problems or the same requests for features. It's just it's the, the combination of the voices is what's going to be heard over one side or the other. I'm not sure I agree with that statement. Uh, let's say we're talking about a VoIP product, uh, Ikiga which sucks. Uh, <laughs> we're never going to get them on the show. Uh, but let's say we're I'm talking about a VoIP product. The free users might say we want it to work across a wider range of hardware. The paid users might say, I want to be able to sniff every packet that my employees are doing to make sure there's no um, corporate espionage going on. Those two things are probably going to be asked for. They're going to be asked for in uh, uh, in equal numbers. Right. And it's the paid people who are going to get listened to now, first. Now, granted, if you had unlimited development potential, you would do everything everybody asked for. But when you can only afford... X amount of your budget to go towards developers, you want those developers developing things that people are going to pay for. And other stuff, great, because you want your product out there. But, you know, hey, you know, the people who are paying my bills, they want this. And then these other people want that. If I can only do one, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, grease the palm that feeds me or, you know, whatever other metaphors you can mix there. <laughs> well, um, All right, Seth, the one I jumped comments? in on kind of ahead, large? but the integrated hardware and software solutions. To me, that is a really big deal. Now, I, I like to tinker. I, I'm a tinkerer, and so I'm not going to pay for it. Um, but for somebody, you know, if it was my business thing, then I want to know that this particular model, this particular hardware set works with this and I'm going to get something that's tied together and I don't have to go looking for third party drivers from some obscure website that I can't even find in a Google search in the first 20 pages. You know, so that is a really big deal to get that integrated hardware and software. It comes to me ready to go out of the box. Okay. Um, and my first point right. I wanted to say is that support is often a red herring. Um, the fact is, the best enterprise support ever isn't very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 800 number is going to go to some, uh, as, as the Linux ghost says in our chat room, to some uh, fellow in India reading a script. Um, I have never called an enterprise-level support for any company and been satisfied with the resolution of my problem. It's never happened. I'm 40 years old. I've been in tech for uh, almost 20 of those years. Never once in my life 
have I called an enterprise paid for support line and been happy with the level of service I got. Yes, the problem got resolved eventually, but never has it happened on the first call to the first person to I talked to uh, friends just of mine because I was just a paying got customer. DSL never happened. And they, they plugged it in, and it didn't work. So who do they call? They call their free tech support friend, Seth, to come over and take a look at it. So I go over, take a look at it. Everything's right. I call, and the guy's like, well, you need to turn the cable around. You need to turn the modem off and back on. And I understand the reasons for doing that, you know, because sometimes you plug the cable in, you don't do it right. So you make them turn it around, and then when they plug it in, they make sure they do it right. But finally, they transferred me to level two. And then the first thing I did was I asked the guy, hey, do you know this guy? Uh, Because I had worked with somebody who we had both left the job because it was going away, and he went to that company, and I went somewhere else. And he's like, yeah, he sits right next to me. And I said, would you tell him Seth said hi? So he came back a minute later and he says, oh, I see. We've never built the routing tables. Hold on one minute. And, uh, you know, so golly, they were going to have me turn the modem off, turn it back on, you know, run circles around it with a pointy hat and all this other garbage whenever somebody you know, get off the script and look and see that the tables weren't built. And then five minutes later, DSL was working at their house. So usually, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm not the normal guy. I know more than the person I'm calling into and I'm telling them how to do their job. Yeah. And the same, the conversation I just said, um, if you're a tech guy, if you're in IT, you are the support. Stop using support as an excuse. You're the support. That's why they pay you. Yep. If they need the 800 right. number, they don't need to pay your salary. Yeah, if 800 number 800 support was so good, let's just use that as our primary tech support and let's not have techs on site. We know that's stupid. That's why we hire people. Yep. So stop using that as an excuse. Yeah, I would say support is never a sailing point, in my opinion. Yes, it's nice, it's great. But bosses love it. But it's not the reason that you should purchase something. Right. Because... Unless, of course, the support is so good that when something breaks down, the tech is already there before you even pick up the phone because they know it's broken to fix it. Right. But I don't know what company that does Customer support never gains you a sale. Okay? Customer support only costs you money. If you're a company and you sell a product, support only is a drain. It's never an asset. Now, it can be a selling point. It can be a bullet point on a, on a slideshow. But as a, as a CIO of a corporation, support is a drain. It's an asset. It's something you'd rather not do. Um, you know, at the, the company where I work now, the, the front desk support, uh, the tech support is not very good. And, and it's not their fault. It's because anybody who's good at the job gets promoted away from the front desk. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so that's the way it works at any company. You get a guy who's really good and knows something. Well, he doesn't need to be wasting his time answering phones. Let's promote him up and, and put him on the team doing yep. some good. So that's that's the way support always is. See, I, yeah. I agree with that, Mark. But I think there's also a point where support may not gain you a sale, but it might keep you from losing customers. I agree with that. I agree that's with why that. that's how I always look at support. It's not there to to gain new customers. It's there to keep customers there. To keep them, from- but at that point, there's a calculus that you do, right? There's the customer acquisition cost. What does it cost you to gain a customer? What does it cost you to keep a customer? And yep. you keep those costs as low as possible. So yep. it, it, it's minimum life support. It's literally, it's it's a guy reading a script. Have you tried unplugging it? You know, ma'am, is there is your unit turned on? Um, <laughs> is there power in your and, house? 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> My next bullet point was the real question is of value, not of values. Uh, the open source community often talks about the values of openness and and that we should you know we shouldn't have to pay for th- for things. Information wants to be free. I heard a great quote from Cory Doctorow. He says, "I sat down, I had a deep conversation with uh, information, and the really th- the only thing it really wants is to stop being anthropomorphized." Um, so let's just do that. Let's let's honor information's requests there and stop giving it human traits. Um, but anyway, it's it's not about values. It's about value. Do you get a value out of the product? If so, step up and pay for it. Yep. That's my that's my way of looking at it. Uh, I have off like Italk for example. I used Italk um, at the school where I worked very heavily. It was our primary uh, support device. I looked at uh, what I would have paid for a competing uh, competing product, and I sent a, a check for half of that amount to the guy who wrote Italk. So I didn't pay the full price. Maybe I should have. Maybe morally I should have paid the full price, but but I didn't. I sent him a check for half because I got value out of it. If you get value out, send the guy a check. Why is that so hard to believe? You know, the, the guy who makes our door, I forget his name. It's a, it's a digital audio workstation for Linux. It's very good. It's high class. It's, it's, it's one of a kind, um, professional grade. And he says that he makes on average about $10,000 a year doing that as his full time, because he has a pay as you, whatever you want to model. Yeah. And that's sad. If you make something good, if you use it every you know, day, wanna, write a check. People. I want to go back to just the do support it. for just a second. Or write him a check every yeah, year. I, right. Okay, and moving on to support. No, I'm sorry, we're done with that stuff. Moving. <laughs> I want. I you know I did phone support for a company, <laughs> and um, you know you can probably listen to previous shows and figure out which company it was for. But we were scored, and you could make an eighty out of a hundred without knowing a single thing, without knowing how to turn a computer on. You could follow the script and make an eighty out of a hundred, and the your scoring is what determine your shift bids, your raises, and you know, and whether you kept your job or got promoted. So you you could do an eighty. You could make a B, you know, a B minus without even knowing how to turn the computer on. Did you greet the customer? Did you mention your website? You know, did you do this? Did you do that? The actual helping them with their issue was only twenty percent of the call, and so ha- consequently. Yeah, and the rest of it was how, how quickly that, that was. did you get how rid long of was the call? customer offline? Was it at least offline, this long, right? but was it not that long? Because the company only got because I didn't work for the big company; they contracted it out, and you only got paid for so many minutes. If it went over that time, my company was no longer making money, and so consequently, probably about eighty percent of the technicians didn't know anything, and only about twenty percent of us were doing real work. So, but anyway. And and that's good enough. When you get back to that uh, customer retention metric, you can have an eighty twenty failure rate. Because every other company and that's okay. Has that's enough to metric. keep people from dropping you know, your, it's your like service. You right. got screwed by company one, so you went to company right. two. Then you got screwed. Then you went to company three. Then you went to company four, and then you go back to company one. Uh, you know, it's just whoever screwed you last is the one you'll never use again. Right. So. And uh, I wanted to hit uh, point four, extra functionality. Uh, Untangle's a good example of that. Uh, the, the free product is good. You pay some money, you get the really good stuff. 
And as Chris, as you've mentioned on this before, you paid for their their top of the line product, yep, uh, because it was worth it to you. Oh, and it, it it is so much more than what the free version is. Um, it's to the point now where I don't think we could have used a product with a lower feature set now, because right. people have gotten to the point they're so used to the, t- the what this particular box brings to the table. Um, most of the the users that know what's going on, they don't want to go back to anything else. They they don't want to have all the ads and all the the spam and everything else that this that the paid version took away. Um, the big one for us, because of bandwidth being such a, a commodity up here in the north, uh, the fact that I can cache a web page and have them surf the cache instead of surfing the internet has been a lifesaver for some of them because like for example during term paper season a lot of those kids are ser- searching for the same stuff so to have that that same search come up in a blink of an eye versus waiting for the pages to download they don't quite realize what's happening but they're in, they enjoy the fact that it's so fast so i think the moral of that story if you're selling an open source product there's there's two things you have to do first Make sure the free component meets a need and meets it well, as as Untangled does. The free one is good for almost every home user and every small business. But then make a paid add-on that is like 10 times better than the freed one. And, and that's the way to make money. That's the way to pry open the wallets of admittedly tightwad people. I mean, my first show on this network was called the Tightwad Tech. My lower third right now says Tightwad in Chief. I am a tightwad. I don't pay for anything if I don't have to. So you have to give me something so good that there's not an open source alternative or even your open source alternative isn't as good. And then people will pay you. So that, you know, to pay or not to pay, um, some of that onus is on us as the consumers, as the users of free product. You know, sometimes breaking out your wallet is just the right thing to do. Sometimes if you've, you know, if you've been using VLC exclusively for years as your only media player, maybe it's time to kick them 10 bucks. You know, just think about it. It's, it's the right thing to do. Um, on the other hand, as the developer and the, the marketer of a product, um, sometimes you have to give very valuable, viable incentive for people to pay. And both those models work really well. What happens, though, is people often go the other way around and you end up with crippleware. The free version you know, doesn't actually do what you need to do. It's a taste of it. It lets you work, you know, it works for 10 seconds or, or it gives you five searches or, you know, you've all been seen those sort of things, the crippleware things where uh, it almost works or you can create a beautiful document, but you can't print it because the print button is disabled in the free version. That's, that just makes people mad. Don't do that. Have a good, solid free product and then a paid version that makes it way yes. better. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Mark. That is the keys. Now, what's going to happen with most people is they're not going to take those keys. They're going to go their own way, but they're going to find out that that the way you just spoke, Mark, is the way to go. Give somebody something that fits most of the situations and then find a a, a tighter net for the finer grain stuff. Yeah. See, Crippleware just ticks me off, and I will never buy your product, no matter yeah. how good it is. Uh, I've done that many times. Just all right. You you just made me mad, and not only did you lose a sale, you lost a customer. Adobe, I'm looking at you. 
I'm not going to buy your products. I'm not going to buy Adobe products because your main way of distributing thing is crapware and crippleware. And I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Calling you out. <laughs> Come tell us why we're wrong. I dare you. Yeah. And then the last point I wanted to make as people selling open source or trying to make money off of open source, don't hold your breath. It's nice to hope money comes. Uh, you know, as we've said, Red Hat is a multi-billion-dollar company uh, uh, selling and supporting an open-source product. It can be done. Don't hold your breath. Start a product, uh, uh, a project, uh, deploy a product because it's what you're passionate about. Because you want to make a difference. If that's why you're open-sourcing it, um, that has to be. You know, your reason. You have also, to do the product for the I, I sake of the product. Almost taking this off-topic, but um, I love the board game. Yeah, I love the board game Axis and Allies. No, we never do and that on there TV is, show, Seth. You know, you can go find Axis and Allies and play it, but this one guy liked the game so much, he made an open source version of Axis and Allies, and um, it's called AAA, and you can go find it and download it, and it's Java-based, so I know because Oracle does a great job of introducing vulnerabilities and not patching them, that Java isn't good in a lot of people's minds, but he um, was actually, he was a software developer and he actually showed somebody the demo that he had made and they were so impressed with his work that he got a job. And so he kept on polishing AAA over time. But so, you know, open source, going into the open source and doing open source products is a way into the market for somebody. And I just realized while I was talking that it has nothing to do with the article, but it's just uh, something to say because I was tired of being quiet. Sorry. <laughs> Words coming out of my mouth, meaning not necessary. <laughs> no, it's that's good. That's a good point. There, uh, I think there has to be sort of a, a bit of soul searching. Before you ever enter the open source market, you have to understand the community. And we are not a forgiving community. We are not um, a charitable, generous community. I, I'm sorry. That's just true. Uh, now, the, the, uh, the humble indie bundle products will say that Linux people pay more. And, okay, great. You know, there are times when we step up. But as a whole... The Linux users, the open source community, the neckbeards, the the uh, the bandana guys, um, are cheapskates and they're rude and they're me first. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Uh, yeah. So if you're if you're looking to make money, don't hold your breath. You have to have a product that's transcendent to be both open source and profitable. Um, you can be profitable and not be open source. That's that's fairly easy. That's a model that has been done and done and done. The being profitable and being open source is actually very difficult to do, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. And if you think we're full of it, come tell us why. Come be on the show. Yeah. Explain how you can make money selling open source. We want to hear from you. Um, obviously, we everyone knows our feelings on this. I mean, we've all said them very loudly, so come and defend yourself. If you are an open source developer and get paid for your product, come and tell us. We want to know. We want to know how you're making your money. If you're making enough to satisfy your family's needs, 
Or is it a moonlighting project that you do in, in your basement when you're yeah, do not you want some working free at a day job? So. You know, come <laughs> tell us. We, we need to know this information. Yeah. Yeah, and, that uh, too. Yeah. A- Andrew, Alex, uh, Antonio, uh, <laughs> the Linux Academy, uh, when he was on, after we stopped recording, he said one of the things that he hears most often is people say, your training is great. I just wish it was open source. And by open source, they mean free. Because you can't really close source training. Once I give you the material, you have the material. It's the definition of open source. But what they mean is, I want good stuff and don't want to pay for it. Yep. And that's the mentality of the the average open source user. That's my mentality. I'm stepping up. I'm putting my hand in the air and saying I am guilty of that. Right. That's my and, mentality. I want good go stuff and I don't want to pay for it. Um. And and that's just that's a hard place to make a living. And, and what happens is people start out as idealistic uh, young guys, and then they become less idealistic family guys, and they have a crisis there. Do I want to be open source or do I want to make money? And very few find a way yep. to do both. And, and no, that's I sad. Say, I wish and it And I true. liked Alex's site so much that, you know, ahead, I, I signed up for a month and I've gone through a lesson. And, you know, I don't know that I'll ever achieve Chris's godfather of the command line status, but, you know, I might dip in there from time to time, you know, kind of dip my toe into the water and see what happens. So, All right. And Chris, if somebody wanted to uh, um, step up and tell us they were wrong, how could they contact us? How would they let us know? Where would they find us on the interwebs? Well, that depends on your po- your choice of poison, you know, because we do have the website at elementopi.com. We do have a Twitter feed at elementopi. Um, we do do the Facebook thing at Facebook slash Element OP. Um, and then if you're really lazy, just whip open your cell phone and call us at 559-IMOP and tell us your reasonings and give us a voicemail. And we'll be happy enough to play it on the air and possibly poke fun at you. So uh, come on, come do it. We want to hear from you. All right. Uh, and I think that wraps up that section. Chris, do you have a command line? for us this week no i don't other than you know there's so much there's so many command lines and switches that i'm that i use day to day that i've already covered on let's see now we're on 80, show 85 i'm starting to run out of everyday tips so we're gonna have to start dipping into the once in a blue moon when it's passover time type command line tips from now <laughs> on so uh you know, guys, if, if you've got a command line tip that's a daily use for you, shoot it to us. Let us know, and I'll evaluate it. And if I agree with you, it's a day-to-day tip that I didn't know about, we'll put it on here. Um, otherwise, I'm going to start coming up with some really obscure stuff that no one will ever use, ever. And speaking of obscure stuff, no! so that's right up your alley. What's your link for this week? Dot com. <laughs> uh You've just got to go there. I put the link in the chat room, and it will be in the show notes. Just go there. It's awesome. All right. It didn't work for me. Do I have to have my sound up to appreciate it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Sound is required for me full effect. So... So check out no.com. If you're wondering how to spell that, it's spelled elementop.com slash everyday Linux. And there's a note right there uh, yes. at the bottom of the show, link at the bottom of the show notes. 
Hey, uh, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, um, I need somebody, to, since my, my last pseudo command worked so well, I'm going to try another one. I need somebody with a lot of time on their hands who likes this show way more than they should to sit through the one hour and currently 27 minutes uh, of this show and transcribe it for me. Not word for word, but just a good description of of each thing so that I can put that up on the show notes. I can't pay you. Um, I just want you to do it because you love me. Uh, so and we'll yeah. say it every week. We'll say that we love you. So that's right. Come on. We will. We will make you quasi famous among fives of listeners worldwide. And by the way, worldwide is right. These. Uh, um, I always knew we had a, a global audience, but. I didn't quite realize the high percentage of people outside the U.S. who listen to this show. Uh, Europe, South America, South Africa, um, um, Asia, Australia, uh, New Zealand. Element OP amazing. conquers Thanks, the that, world! That is amazing to me. Uh, that that. <laughs> <laughs> and keep listening and keep uh, writing in and let us know what you think. Because we do this show for you well, actually we do it because we like to do it but we, we wouldn't like to do it if nobody cared yes frankly if we didn't yeah. have any listeners we'd get bored of each other um you're what makes us tick so thanks for that and if somebody uh, honestly it's i'm asking for a really special person who is just you know retired and a recluse with no people skills and just has hours and hours on his hand. I understand. I'm I'm looking for the great white buffalo here. Um, but if you if you uh, if you want to do that for me, uh, you don't even have to ask my permission. Just send me a transcript of this show and of you know previous shows, and I will post it. And I will say, and, and you, here's a secret. I probably won't even read it. So like in in the fifth paragraph down, you can bury like an ad for your website or disparaging comments about me and it'll be published on the web and I won't even know. So if you're a devious person, this is an opportunity for you, uh, which is probably why you don't have any friends and you have so much spare time. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Live studio audience. Uh, Seth, Chris, appreciate you being here. And I'm going to say that ends this episode of Bye. Everyday Linux. Bye.